the Ortho PAC hosted by Sam Dyer. Welcome to the Ortho PAC where we discuss up-to-date orthopedic topics for the busy clinician. I invite you to sit back and relax as I attempt to fill in the gaps between education, current events, and real-world practice. Listeners, here I go reminiscing again. Today's podcast will be a replay of some highlights from my interview with the golf doctor, Bill Mallon. This was a couple of years ago. Dr. Mallon is retired from clinical practice, but was a professional golfer, an orthopedic shoulder specialist, an Olympic historian, and a multiple-time published author. He is the editor-in-chief of the Journal of Shoulder and Elbow Surgery. Here is what he had to say about shoulder augmentation. First up, augmentation techniques uh, beyond anchors and sutures of a massive rotator cuff tear. What are our options for that? Well, there's a lot more options now than there used to be. Around 2000 or so, I started doing augmentation of massive rotator cuff tears that you really were sort of irreparable. You really couldn't quite get them all the way together. If you did, they were hanging by a thread and you knew they were going to re-tear. So you'd supplement it with some sort of graft. There's probably hundreds of different types of grafts that are out there. I sort of settled on one called the graft jacket, which is a human cellular dermis. And, you know, I, I have no uh, proprietary interest in that either, so don't worry about that. Mm-hmm. Um, I tried a couple other ones, one of which was sort of famously uh, debunked and didn't work very well. I used these to supplement repairs on cuffs that I could get together that had been retorn and I, I thought needed more support. And I also used them to kind of bridge the gap on really big tears where I just couldn't get them together. And, you know, that's uh, become a very popular, you know, method of, uh, you know, treating some of these big tears. Now, a lot of people have gone to a thing called a superior capsular reconstruction mm-hmm. where they don't even try to repair the really big tears as much. They just bridge the gap in the tear with uh, some sort of graft, either graft jacket or another type, you know, because again, there's multiple types, human, animal, various complex molecular things that you can use. And in the superior capsular reconstruction, they don't try to repair the tendon. They put the graft between the superior aspect of the glenoid and then attach it to the greater tuberosity, which stabilizes the shoulder better. But also then they attach the cuff to the graft. And this was actually pioneered in Japan by a surgeon there named Dr. Miata. It's had remarkable results over there. It's also had very good results over here. I don't think it's been quite as good as what he had in his initial results. But, you know, this came about right around the time I'd stopped clinical practice, so I never did any of these. It's really a very hot topic now on big rotator cuff tears. We chatted about shoulder instability and conservative versus surgical management. If you look at the history of this again, when I was a resident in the 80s, the teaching was that you operated on the second dislocation. If someone dislocated one time, you put them in a sling for a few weeks and then get them going, and you didn't operate on them until they dislocated at least twice. Then... Uh, again, in the late 80s and early 90s, especially at West Point, they started looking at fixing people on the first dislocation. And it looks like if you if you look at this, the results are better if you fix 
after one dislocation rather than waiting for the second one, at least in young people, that's the case. Again, the West Point studies were obviously done in young people because it was all West Point cadets. Mm -hmm. It really depends how old you are. Again, it is a key factor on the decision. If you're 40 years old and you dislocate your shoulder for the first time, the concern is not that you're going to keep re-dislocating. The concern is that when you dislocated, you tore your rotator cuff along with it. Mm -hmm. So in that situation, a 40-year-old first-time dislocator, it's critical to get an MRI to see if the uh, rotator cuff was torn. And if it was, that's probably a fairly solid indication to fix that rotator cuff. Mm -hmm. If you're 18 or 19, very unusual to tear your rotator cuff because the tissue has a different elasticity uh, and stiffness and all. But at 18 or 19, the chance of you re-dislocating your shoulder is very high. Now, to add to the controversy here, if you look at European studies, the chance of you re-dislocating is about 60 to 70%. If you look at American studies, it's 90%. Mm-hmm. Um, so Americans have kind of you know, pushed to operate in younger people on the first dislocation. And I, I think it's fairly well settled that a teenager or young 20s with a first-time dislocation does better if you repair it the first time. It, it prevents uh, getting further joint damage by multiple dislocations. And the last topic for today's podcast, we discussed a long-head biceps tenodesis and his own personal history with a similar surgery. You're talking to someone who, when I was a pro golfer, had a long-head biceps tenodesis when I you know, partially tore my bicep. It's very common to have a tenodesis, and it doesn't have to be a tenodesis. You can do a tenotomy where you just release the tendon. If you look at studies of outcomes on how that does, most of the studies on the outcomes comparing just releasing the tendon, a tenotomy to a tenodesis, don't show any difference in functional outcome. The only difference is sometimes you get a Popeye deformity after the tenotomy, and you don't, you very rarely get that after the tenodesis. It can happen, but very rarely. Mm -hmm. The only studies that I've seen where it showed tenodesis did better than tenotomy actually came out of Duke. And I know the guy who did it, and I know he he hates the idea of doing a tenotomy. (laughs) In terms of releasing the biceps as a pain generator, whether you release it with a tenotomy or do a tenodesis, that's very popular now. And it was very popular in the 60s and early 70s. That's when I had my surgery. Mm-hmm. In the 80s, it became uh, kind of, uh, you know, verboten. Nobody said, oh, the bicep's not important. Don't worry about it. Charlie Rockwood, who, you know, wrote the famous fracture textbook, Rockwood and Green, mm-hmm. was a big shoulder surgeon. He didn't believe in the biceps as a uh, source of uh, uh, shoulder pain. But I think most people now believe it is a big source of shoulder pain and that people with an abnormal biceps tendon, when you look at it arthroscopically, probably be better with uh, either tenodesis or tenotomy. And and again, where you do it and how you do it, there's a lot of questions about that. I I think uh, it's fairly well settled that uh, it is a a pain generator. In, In fact, in Europe, on massive rotator cuff tears that were irreparable, and this was kind of before reverse shoulder replacements came out, one of the popular treatments that was popularized in France was just to release the biceps, so just do a tenotomy. They, they did that instead of a tenodesis usually in those studies. Mm-hmm. Um, but they just tried to get rid of it because they thought it was a major pain generator in people with big rotator cuff tears. And, and the guy I did my fellowship with, Richard Hawkins, is actually a big proponent of that. He, he believes that very much so. Listeners, I hope you enjoyed our blast from the past. 
Next week, we will begin a series with Michael Poe from the AAPA discussing reimbursement issues, innovative care models, value-based payments, and competition for first assisting roles. I look forward to having him on, and that will be our topic next week. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this podcast. We also welcome you to visit our website, paos.org, where members can download virtual conference content and get Category 1 CME. Also, if you're a non-member and you're interested in our CME content, please visit the aapa.org Learning Central for the PAOS virtual content.